0: Hello and welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London. Today with Rebecca Myers and James Hansen.
1: On today's episode, what does the death of Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic, mean for Russia at war?
0: most dangerous thing to be in Vladimir Putin's Russia is a critic of the president. Alexei Navalny, the former lawyer who became a talismanic figure for Russian opposition to Putin, has died in prison.
1: An official statement from Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service says he collapsed after going for a walk earlier today. But Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky says it's obvious Putin is behind his death. Navalny, who was 47, had been imprisoned numerous times and was poisoned in 2020. Here's the reaction of Jens Stoltenberg, NATO General Secretary.
2: What we have seen is uh, that Russia has become a more and more authoritarian power, that they have used uh, oppression against uh, opposition for many years. And of course, he was in jail, he was a prisoner. That makes it extremely important that uh, Russia now answer all the questions that will be uh, asked.
0: Mark Galliotti writes for The Times about Russia and the Putin regime. Mark, just put this into context for us. Why was Navalny such an important figure?
3: Two reasons why he was so significant. One was that he had this extraordinary capability to reach out beyond the usual opposition circles. And what really made him dangerous and why the, the state truly went after him is precisely when he was starting to reach out and is try and form a kind of coalition of the fed up. So it didn't matter if you were a, you know, a factory worker who was just unhappy because you you couldn't make ends meet or whether you were some kind of liberal, middle-class intellectual or whatever. The idea was to bring that alliance together. That's what made him dangerous. And that was because of his charisma, his organising capacity and so forth. The other thing about what made him so dangerous was precisely that he went back. Putin tried to, well, his agents essentially poisoned him. Navalny was able to get medical treatment in Germany and he could have stayed out there. He could have been a sort of the kind of opposition figure who stays in a nice sort of cosy berth in the West while complaining about what's going on in Russia. But he went back to continue to have skin in the game, and that kind of kept him relevant. Now, look, it's very, very hard to tell at this early stage whether this is the kind of thing that is going to turn him into a martyr and bring people out on the streets. I have a suspicion that probably not, given the degree to which this is a very brutal authoritarianism at the moment. But nonetheless, there's no one who will not think that directly or indirectly Putin killed Navalny.
1: And Mark, what does Navalny's death say about the strength of Vladimir Putin? If, as Zelensky says, he has been involved in this, does this mean he's more powerful than ever?
3: See, I'd actually flip that round. Putin was at his strongest when he didn't need to be killing people. And we saw this also when he murdered his his mercenary commander, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Again, that actually, although on one level it, it looks as if it's affirming Putin's strength, his capacity to reach out and kill anyone he wants. On another one, and certainly within the Russian elite, it's actually an expression of Putin's weakness. But he feared first Prigozhin and now Navalny so much that he actually had to kill them. That, for, for me, is not only a sign of a shift from a kind of hybrid authoritarianism to a full-blown totalitarianism, but also a sign that the ageing Putin is not as confident as he would like to make out.
0: It's Mark Gagliotti, who writes for The Times about Russia and the Putin regime.
1: As Israel continues military operations in southern Gaza, one of its key priorities is finding a man called Yahya Sinwar. He is the Hamas leader who masterminded the October 7th attacks.
0: In the Times today, our defence correspondent George Grills has an interview with Michael Kuby, a former director of interrogations at Shin Bet, Israel's domestic security agency, who interrogated Sinwar more than 30 years ago. And George has been telling Times Radio why he's such a consequential figure.
2: So Yahya Simwa is the leader of Hamas. In the Gaza Strip. He is, I would say, Israel's most wanted figure following the October the 7th attacks. He's widely considered as the mastermind behind those attacks. But what's remarkable about his story is that he spent 22 years in Israeli prisons. So from 1989 to 2011, he was detained by Israel. He even had a brain tumour removed by Israeli doctors during that time, but he was set free as part of an exchange deal for the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit and rose to become the leader of Hamas in Gaza and saw through this attack, which was the worst loss of Jewish life since, since the Holocaust.
1: In his interview with George, Michael Kuby says Sinwar had murderous eyes and would rather be a martyr than crack under interrogation. And earlier this week, the Israeli Defence Force released footage of a man they claim is Senwar fleeing a tunnel in Gaza. But does that mean Simwa is any closer to being caught? Here's George again.
2: I think what was remarkable about that clip was that they were happy to release it, even though it comes from October the 10th. So Mm. that's four months ago. So that would suggest to me they're four months behind the trail. It's also not 100% clear that it is. Simwa, the Israelis claim it is because you only see the sort of back of the head of this figure walking through the tunnel this shadowy figure they claim that his large ears give him away as simwa no one's been able to corroborate that but there was also sort of briefings around december that the israelis were closing in he was going to be sort of found within within days and it hasn't happened so far and given that israel you know now occupies the vast majority of the gaza strip the fact they haven't found him so far is almost as remarkable as the fact that they released his footage
0: Now, from the Williams sisters in tennis to the Verstappen, Schumachers and Rosbergs in Formula One, there are plenty of successful sporting families. And now, a pair of twins from the UK could be about to take skiing by storm.
1: Laura Wildenberg has written for The Times today about the Carrick-Smith family. 17-year-old Zach has just won three medals, including two golds at the Youth Winter Olympics in South Korea. In the international rankings for boys of their age, Zach is number one at the giant slalom, but ranking in second place is his twin, Freddie Carrick-Smith. Meanwhile, the twins' older brother, Luca, has also
0: won medals. But to top it all off, the best skier in the family might just be their mum, Emma, who skied for Great Britain in four winter olympics and what makes it all the more surprising is britain doesn't really produce many top skiers probably rebecca because we don't have any snow <laughs> do we
1: no we
0: don't uh, you can read more about the carrick smiths and their success on the slopes by visiting the or on the app with your digital subscription
1: Recognize which language this rapper is using. It may sound like Italian, but it's actually Neapolitan, a regional dialect with Italian, French, and Spanish influences. Tom Kington is a Times journalist in Rome. He's been telling us why Neapolitan is in the news.
4: The Neapolitan rapper known as Geolier has been hitting the headlines in Italy this week because he was a sort of runaway success in Italy's national song contest on TV, the San Remo TV song contest, which is a huge deal in Italy. It goes on for a week, everyone watches it. He won 60% of the phone-in vote. He eventually came second when they added in the jury vote, but uh, 60% of the phone-in vote was was a massive, uh, sort of popular victory. And the, the interesting thing is that he comes from Naples, he raps in Neapolitan dialect. And as someone pointed out, 60% of Italians don't really understand what he's rapping about. So it's kind of intriguing that he won 60% of the phone-in vote.
0: And Tom, can many Italians speak or even understand Neapolitan? It
4: depends on who's speaking it. But I mean, an Italian can sort of make out bits and pieces. But there is entirely different vocabulary. And it also has its own grammar which is why many people say that it must be considered a different language rather than a dialect. That all said, there are occasions on Italian TV when you'll have dramas set in Naples, I'm thinking of uh, Gomorrah, the, the Mafia saga, where even for Italians there will be subtitles because that Neapolitan is just too thick.
0: As Tom Kingston, a journalist for The Times in Rome. <laughs>
1: Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of The Times of London. See you tomorrow.